0: morning. He is risen. (laughs) Happy Easter, everybody. You guys can have a seat for a few moments here. Actually, let's open with prayer. Would you guys join me in prayer? Father, Lord, we just praise you. Jesus, you are so glorious. You are so awesome. You are so worthy of praise. Lord, you are God. You have victory over death. You have victory over sin, and we know this because you have risen from the dead, because you have proven it once and for all. And so, Lord, all of our faith, all of our hope and trust is in you for new life, for resurrection life, and that you are making all things new. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Welcome to Life Bridge, everyone. My name is Pastor John. Thanks for joining us for Easter Sunday. Our campaign that we've been in, we call these long teaching series campaigns. Uh, We've been calling this one a la carte Christianity. And the idea behind it is we tend to approach our Christian faith like we approach an a la carte menu at a restaurant. We'll take a little bit of this and I'm going to leave that. So we, we approach scripture, we approach the faith, and we just order up the things that we like out of the Christian faith. And then we leave the challenging things or the things that are difficult to the things that we perhaps don't like. What we found in the teaching of Jesus is that he calls us to pick up our cross daily and follow him. He tells us that if we lose our life for him, then we'll find it. We'll, fi- we'll have true life in Christ if we lose our life for him. To be sure, there is no finding of life without first losing it. Okay, But that was our Good Friday message, so I'm not going to bum you all out with that message. <laughs> that was the cross on Friday, but simply... T- to be clear, okay, there, there is no resurrection life without death first, all right? Jesus died first, and then he rose. So just as there is no Easter without Good Friday, we as Christ followers have no resurrection life without first death to self. But on the other end of death to self is indeed resurrection life, is newness of life. I said on Friday and, and, uh, um, my initial like, kind of thought process went to how we try to order up a la carte a little bit of resurrection life in the Christian faith and leave the death to self on the table. So we talked about that on Friday. But I think the, the opposite is also true. There are traditions. There are certain approaches to Christianity where we try to order up death to self and leave the resurrection life on the table. We forget about that, and we focus only on the death piece. And we see this in some traditions that are focused on just like severe asceticism or like disciplines, and it's all about disciplines. And they're strictly adhered to rules and laws that go well beyond the teachings of scripture. And we hold others accountable to those. Folks who are all about death and no resurrection tend to be kind of a bummer to be around in in the church and in the Christian faith. They tend to constantly be judging themselves, first and foremost, and others. They hold themselves up to this super high standard that they can't live up to. And because they feel guilty about that, then they hold others up to that same standard and try to force them to live that way as well. Around these folks, you're kind of like, I don't, you take life really too seriously. <laughs> it's like, can I laugh? Can I make a joke? Are you gonna like stare holes through me if I make a joke and you're not gonna laugh or try like some of you're doing to me right now? That's fine. Whatever. I get it. It's a vulnerable place up here on the stage. No, <laughs> a little laughter doesn't hurt. Now I'm just like, <laughs> making you feel guilty about that. Okay. Um. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Anyways, there aren't there aren't a whole lot of people. Like, I was trying to think of even some examples in my life of folks like this, and I don't know many. <laughs> like, I don't really know any here at LifeBridge or have been here very long at LifeBridge simply because it, you'll be real uncomfortable here if you're, if you're kind of a bummer, <laughs> if you're all about death. Because out in the lobby, as you'll see on the way in and out, I'm sure you've noticed like there's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of silliness. There's kids running around everywhere, and they're laughing and joking, and nobody's like, stop, right? Because they're kids, and it's fun. There's, it's good to have joy. And there's a lot of adults joking and laughing and talking. So if that's your mentality on life, like it's going to be real uncomfortable here for you. And I think that's a good thing, because there's resurrection life. The Christian life should be lived in joy and peace with God because of Jesus and the resurrection and the new life that he has given us. So the only folks that I know who live in death are, like, on social media, and I just stop following them (laughs) because they're a real bummer, (sighs) and I can just hit that unfollow button, and I don't have to view their content anymore, except for research. Okay, Our our text that we've kind of been coming back to again and again in this campaign is Galatians 2.20. The Apostle Paul writes this, this to the church of Galatia. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. That's our Good Friday text, okay? That's the death to self, self before death to self, oh my goodness, before life. But there is life after that. But Christ lives in me, he says. So this new life that he has is, is now in Christ. It's for Christ. It's through Christ. Everything is about him. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's whole life now is rooted, is based in Jesus. His whole identity is in Jesus. His occupation, his mission, his calling, everything that he does in his life is now lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me because he has experienced the great love of Jesus on the cross that Jesus gave himself for him, now he has given himself fully to Christ. So that's the, that's the theoretical, that's the teaching part of how we live in this new resurrection life with Christ. But what does that look like in our day to day life? It can often be just kind of this lofty concept. They're like, yeah, die to self, live for Christ. Don't really know what that means. So in the Gospels, there are so many stories. So our stories are so powerful. As we read through the Gospels, we're such a visual culture that this is hard for us to do. You really have to read through the Gospels. The word, the, the descriptions, the words are limited because it's ancient text, right? It's different. They don't describe everything for us so that we can picture it super clearly. But we have to do the hard work of just sitting and reflecting on these stories to get our, put ourselves into the place of these characters to understand what's going on here. In the resurrection account, we're going to focus on a couple of different characters. We're going to look at Peter and Mary Magdalene and see how their life changed and what it looked like for them to live in this resurrection life, this newness of life that they found in Jesus. We're going to read it in John, John's account of the resurrection, John chapter 20. It says, "'Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the tomb had been removed, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance.'" Like, that's sacrifice enough for me. She's up before dawn, right? That's rough, man. I am not a morning person, so that sounds awful. And some of y'all, like, get up to go fishing before dawn or, like, get up to go hunting. Unbelievable. I don't understand you, but I love you. So, uh, So she's up before dawn. She's willing to sacrifice to go to the tomb and just be there. And when she arrives, she finds that the stone has been rolled away. And other gospel accounts document that Mary wasn't there alone, but uh, John and his is just mentioning Mary, which is common in ancient texts where they only mention the most like prominent person who's there. But she's not there alone. So, after she finds that the, tomb, that the stone has been removed... She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. That's John. That's how John refers to himself throughout his gospel. Remember, this is him writing this gospel. It's not like a prideful thing where he's like, the one Jesus loved and didn't love anybody else. No, it's just like his way of humbling himself by not referring to himself and using his own name, right? They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, So they both run as fast as they can. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that. This is so good. I can't wait to ask John, just be like, dude, did you include that? Just as like an eternal dig that you're faster than Peter. I hope he did, because that's funny. That's really funny. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Like, as we read these stories, we get, we get a glimpse of Peter's character and who he is and his personality. Peter's impulsive, like Peter does. He reminds me of like a type A kind of guy. He's the first guy to speak. Uh, John sits there and looks in. He's like checking things out first. Peter's just like, I'm in. And he just like bulldozes right through there. We're going to see another, another story in the next chapter that, uh, that kind of reveals the same about Peter's character. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Although John, he makes this this kind of parenthetical note, they still didn't understand from Scripture. They didn't get the big story yet. So John believed, but he didn't quite get the big story yet, that Jesus had to rise from the dead. He didn't totally see what God was doing. All right, so we're going to pause here. We're going to go on with the story of Mary Magdalene in just a moment. Uh, But we're going to pause here for just a second. And verse 10 says that they went back to where they were staying. Uh, We're going to pause here and kind of fast forward to the next chapter of John's gospel and talk about Peter a little bit. So again, we're looking at the resurrection life that we see in both Peter and Mary Magdalene. The rest of this story in John chapter 20 talks about Mary Magdalene. But let's follow the story of Peter a little bit as well. When we go to John chapter 21, we see that this is after Jesus has risen from the dead. John documents this is the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. And in John 21, we see that the disciples decide to just go out fishing. All right, That's all they know. That was their occupation. That's what they do. So they they go out fishing, and Jesus stands on the beach early in the morning. What's with all this early in the morning stuff, right? And he tells them to throw their nets onto the other side of the boat. Now, the... He, he does this earlier when he calls them to be his disciples again. So this is like a whole other calling thing. and it, It's awesome what John's doing here. But they've been out fishing all night. And if you're a fishing person, apparently like you catch more fish at night usually. That's when they're awake, when they're feeding. I don't know. I've never done it <laughs> because I'm sleeping, right? And there's fish at the grocery store. I'll just go get that. Um, so they've been all, out all night fishing. And it's early in the morning. So... In the high time to catch fish, they haven't caught any. It's early in the morning. This guy, they don't recognize it's Jesus yet, is standing on the shore and he tells them, hey, throw your net onto the other side. It's like, we've been fishing all night, haven't caught anything. Also, what is the other side of the boat going to do, right? <laughs> it's on this side, so what? Like, I mean, we don't have sonar, but it's not a very far distance from this side of the boat to the next. Why would we catch fish over here? They do, they obey, and they do it. That's key, they obeyed, right? And they catch a ton of fish. Catch like 153 fish, right? And this net was only made to hold like 12 and it doesn't break. So miraculous thing. As soon as they catch all the fish, it's like, oh, I remember this from when Jesus first called us. John tells Peter, he's like, it's the Lord. And Peter doesn't wait. Peter, again, impulsive Peter. That actually, that goes well. He he just like throws on his cloak and he jumps in and he swims as fast as he can to get to Jesus. The boat's too slow. So I'm just going to swim. I'm going to get there first to be with Jesus. And when he gets there, Jesus has this charcoal fire going. John specifically mentions that it's a charcoal fire. Why? <laughs> the only other place that this occurs in John's gospel and really in all of the New Testament is in John 18, where Peter, when he came and followed Jesus after he had been arrested, he follows him into the courtyard. Peter is warming himself around a charcoal fire when he denies Jesus three times. Okay, so Jesus has this charcoal fire going to bring him back to that moment. And as we're gonna see, it's not to rub his face in it, but it's just to remind him, Peter, you're guilty. (laughs) You sinned. Oftentimes it's good for us to return to those, but not stay there, as Jesus is gonna say. Because Peter had denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus takes Peter for a walk on the beach. Well, first he makes them breakfast. Think about that for a second. Like Jesus, God in flesh, the guy who they just saw die, and he rose from the dead. He's got all this power, all this authority. He's Lord of all creation, and he's cooking them breakfast after he had just washed their feet a couple of days earlier. Jesus, as he says, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. These are the events and the encounters that Peter had with Jesus that revealed the character of Jesus far more than anything he said or taught was his actions. So Jesus cooks them breakfast and then he goes for a walk with Peter and he asks him three times, one for each of the denials, Peter, do you love me? Why do you love me? I think Jesus knows that at the heart of what Peter needs to be reinstated into his ministry as a disciple of Jesus is simply to just love him. That's gotta be the heart of it. He doesn't ask him, Peter, do you love being a part of my crew? (laughs) Like, do you think you deserve this, Peter? (laughs) Tell me, how how remorseful are you? (laughs) Replay this for me. No, he just asked him, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's answer of yes, Jesus already knows that he loves him. So if he does love him, then yes, he is remorseful. He is sorry for his sin. He's not just sorry he got caught and that Jesus is alive to call him out on it and he can't just hide it and cover it up for all eternity. No, he's sorry that he got caught and he loves Jesus. And he's like, man, I can't believe I denied you when you told me I was going to do this. I still did. Do you love me, Peter? Peter answers three times, yes, I love you. Lord, you know, he starts to get offended. He's like, Lord, you know that I love you. Why are you asking me? Jesus just needs him to reaffirm it. To know that this is the root of his repentance. is his love for Jesus. All right, that's Peter. That's my favorite story in the Bible, so I could go on that all day, but I won't. Next, let's talk about Mary Magdalene. A little bit about Mary Magdalene. What we know about her is Jesus cast seven demons out of her. We don't know much else about her. uh, A pope in the 6th century linked, Pope Gregory, linked Mary Magdalene to the Mary at Bethany who anointed Jesus before he was arrested and went to the cross. And Luke's gospel documents that she was a sinful woman, so she's often been associated with that person who lived a promiscuous lifestyle, we assume. But we don't know. That's not certain. That may have been her. Mary was a very common name in that day, very common name. So it was likely a different Mary, but it could have been her. We don't know. What we do know is Jesus cast seven demons out of her. And what we know is that after he, after he did that, she followed him everywhere. She was among his disciples, not the 12, but the larger group of disciples who constantly followed Jesus. And uh, one gospel document is that she helped care for his needs, like minister to him. So she did something, whether it was through her wealth or provisions or just like helping out where she could. She was there and she helped the disciples and helped Jesus on his ministry, among, along with many other women. Magdala is a city in Galilee. Jesus traveled all throughout the region of Galilee and Judea. So she left everything. She left her house, her home, her people that she knows, her family. We don't know if she had like a lot of responsibilities or a little, but she had some and she left them all. To come and follow Jesus and to be with him. Oh, I just gotta say that. So if you if what you know of Mary Magdalene is from the Da Vinci Code, forget it. Forget it. Okay? Not real. It's fiction. All right. It's a fun story that somebody made up and thought, what if Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a baby? Like, not real, okay? It's fiction. Totally untrue. But she loved Jesus. Not in the romantic sense, but. She loved him. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So this is after Peter and John had went to the tomb, Mary came back to the tomb as well, and she stood outside the tomb crying. Now, like she doesn't know what's happened yet. Just at the thought that somebody has desecrated the body of Jesus and taken it and hid it has brought her to tears. She's already been there early in the morning, and now she's there again just weeping, crying. As she wept... She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, it wasn't offensive in this culture. He's just addressing her. Why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. This is common in the resurrection accounts. Jesus looks so different. <laughs> not uh, In his resurrection state, no longer... Vulnerable to the decay of sin, she didn't recognize him, even though she spent so much time with him. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes in his commentary on why Jesus asked her this. He asked her to widen her horizons, to recognize that grand as her devotion to him was, her estimate of him was far too small. She still doesn't quite understand how great Jesus is, and he's kind of drawing this out for her. Isn't this a picture of discipleship? I'm just like, I don't care how long you've been a Christian. (laughs) The longer you've been a Christian, the more you should be learning and growing in your devotion to Jesus because, man, he's way bigger. He's way better. He's way more glorious than you had ever previously thought. That's the heart of discipleship to Jesus is growing in love for him as you grow in understanding and learn more about who he is, as you experience him more through your pain and your suffering, as you experience his kindness, his goodness, more and more throughout your life, Jesus becomes more glorious. And he leads you on this path of discipleship with him where, man, he's greater than you could have ever imagined. He's way greater than you think he is right now, guaranteed. And until we see him in eternity face to face, we will have no concept of his glory and his majesty and his splendor. Thinking he was the gardener. (laughs) I love that. Again, this gives so much evidence to the truth of Scripture. Like, as these texts are written, John likely wrote this around 80 AD. Or, is that Revelation? I'm forgetting. He wrote this later. Later, he (laughs) he could have very easily just made himself look great. Made Mary look great. Made Peter look great. Made all the disciples look great because they're leading this new movement of the early church. They need to look awesome. But no, he, he documents all their fallacies and their faults and their flaws. Mary thought he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. When Jesus says her name is when she notices that it's Jesus. Jesus teaches in John 10, 3 and 4 that he calls his sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. And so do you know the voice of Jesus? Then when he calls your name, that you'll follow him wherever he goes. So you're so familiar with Jesus through scripture that when he calls you, you identify that it's him. one of the most intimate moments in scripture. It's just beautiful. We can just sit there and imagine that for the rest of the day. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. So, John doesn't document this, but she either fell at his feet and grabbed his feet in awe and in worship of him, or she just came up and gave him a big hug. (laughs) Remember, she's been weeping, so she's crying. She probably couldn't even see him before, and she just comes and gives him a hug. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. The sense of what Jesus is likely saying here is that, hey, don't don't cling to me. You don't have to hold on to me and cling to me forever. I'm going to be here a little while. He hasn't ascended yet. He's going to spend more time with them in his resurrected body. She's likely, again, hugging him or falling at his feet And he's like, Mary, I have a job for you. Like, this is a time for joy. This is a time for sharing in this with the rest of the disciples and my followers. So I have a job for you. So don't just sit and cling to me now. Like, I want you to go do this for me first. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary becomes the first evangelist to share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, in this culture, a woman's testimony was not permissible in court. So culturally, they had all been conditioned that her testimony wasn't as valuable. And now that's wrong, right? But still, God, in his divine sovereignty, in the way that he plays this whole scenario out, he sends Mary first with this commission to go tell the disciples that Jesus has risen. This is evidence, this is a sign that God is making all things new. That the former ways of things are changing. He is making a new people where all people are called to declare the excellencies of Christ. Where all people have this mission for Christ, regardless of your race, your gender, ethnicity. Without distinction, all people are called to be a part of this people of God. Banji, you guys can come and get set up here. Big idea is very simple. Really one of the most simple ideas (laughs) in church. But one that we need to be reminded of again and again. And as we read through scripture, this is what we see as, as the heart of what drove Peter to Jesus in the midst of his guilt and shame. This is what we see as the heart of what drove Mary to the empty tomb. Our new life in Christ is marked by great love for Jesus. So as we're reflecting on what does it look like, what does it mean to have this new resurrection life in Jesus, this is, this is at the heart of it, is what stirs your heart? What are you passionate about? What gets you excited? What gets you amped up? Is it love for Jesus or is it something else? This is a mark of resurrection life, is love for Christ. And we see it in Peter, and we see it in Mary. I'll come back in a few moments and apply it a little more thoroughly. We're going to sing now uh, praises to our Savior. And I asked the band to sing it as Well. <laughs> this is one of the songs that I've just been captivated by this Easter season. Every Easter, I kind of just get like drawn into a couple of stories, and it's Peter and Mary as I'm sharing with you today. And it's been this song. So we sang the first couple of verses on Good Friday, which are more sad, right? And more about our sin and how Christ has taken our sin on the cross. This this verse that we're gonna sing now is about Christ's return. And because he is our resurrected Savior and he's promised to return, that's where our hope is, is in Christ and in his return, where he will make all things new. And so I feel like I have to say that simply because this song is a little slower right? It's not, it's not like your typical happy, cheery, upbeat Easter song, but it's so deep and rich in meaning. And so I invite you all to stand. Let's stand. Let's sing praises to our Savior together. And if you need prayer while we're singing, please feel free to head into the back where there's prayer available for you. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness and First and foremost, it's your presence with us for all eternity. You said before you ascended that you'll be with us to the very end of the age. Lord, there's nothing better than that than knowing that you are with us. And so, Lord, like Peter, we just want to be with you. We want to run to you. We want to get to you to be in your presence, Lord, to spend time with you. We thank you for your presence with us. Like Mary Magdalene. We want to embrace you. We want to cling to you because we love you. Spirit of God, would you form that deep love in us as we reflect on the love that you have for us. Lord, did you form love for you within us and that that would be what roots us, what grounds us in our identity and in our pursuits. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. <clears throat> All right, our big idea is quite simple. Again, this new life in Christ is marked by great love and devotion for Jesus. It has to be at the heart of it. <laughs> we can be really good moral people. We can be quote unquote good Christians, but not be rooted and grounded in love. And that's not the way of Jesus. When we have this new life in Christ, it begins with this love that's formed within us and this desire to pursue him and to love him. That has to be at the heart of it. That has to be what marks this resurrection life. That's what Peter had. That's what drove him. That's what Mary Magdalene had. And that's what drove her. So, From these stories, like I said, we're exploring what this new life in Christ lived in faith in Christ, as Paul says, what it looks like. There's a couple of things that I want to tease out from the stories of Peter and Mary Magdalene. First, in the story of Peter, this love for Jesus that's a part of this new life with Christ means running to Jesus with our guilt and our shame. Remember Peter, at this point in the story, he's just denied Jesus three times. And when he did, Jesus looked at him. Jesus had warned him that he was going to do this. And when he denies Jesus, Jesus, in the midst of his trial, looks at Peter, except to say, I know. (laughs) You're guilty. And then later in the story, what we just read, after the resurrection, Peter hears of the tomb being empty, and he runs to the tomb. John outruns him. He's faster than him. But Peter still runs. (laughs) And then when he sees Jesus on the beach after a night of fishing, he dives into the water. I actually don't know if he dove. Maybe he can in bolt. I don't know. But he, he jumped into the water and he swam to Jesus because the boat wasn't fast enough. Peter didn't run from Jesus in his guilt and his shame. Which guilt and shame tend to do to us, they tend to isolate us, which we're going to see in a moment. So instead, Peter runs to him I've often thought about this as I imagine this scenario, and imagine myself as Peter in this story. He had just denied Jesus three times. Jesus knew it, he knew it. He probably could have kept it a secret forever. Nobody else was there. Um, when he hears that Jesus has risen from the dead, what's running through his head? He's been playing that scenario over and over again the last couple of days. I can't believe I did that. He's been beating himself up. He's guilty. He's experiencing, he's feeling the shame of it. He, went, he goes out and he, he weeps after Jesus looks at him and he denied him three times then he hears of Jesus' resurrection. He's probably thinking, I wonder what Jesus is going to (laughs) say. He knows, I know. What's this conversation going to go like? But still he runs to him. He jumps in the water and he swims to him. He just can't wait to get to Jesus. When Jesus is the one he offended, Jesus is the one he betrayed. So often when we violate somebody's trust, when we offend somebody, when we betray somebody, when we're feeling guilty about what we've done to somebody, the last thing we do, want to do is talk to them and see them, right? We want to go be alone. <laughs> we don't want to see them. But Peter runs to Jesus. What? Why? And the best answer I can come up with is that throughout G- Peter's time with Jesus, he just knew he had to get to him. I doubt that Peter had articulated it to himself of why he knew that Jesus would forgive him and accept him back. But he just knew it. He had seen Jesus heal lepers. He had seen Jesus care for the poor, the weak, the ostracized. He had seen Jesus in his interactions with the Roman centurion. So much more is caught than taught, right? Even though he never heard Jesus probably specifically say this yet, he knew, because of his time spent with Jesus, that that's where he needed to be. And as I think about this and reflect on it in my own life, I know that like, this is the way I want my kids to perceive me. That they can offend me gravely. <laughs> they can hurt me deeply. But the last thing I want them to do is to run from me. No matter how much they've offended me, no matter how much they've hurt me, through my experiences with them, over years spent with them, I want them to know that they can come to be with me and that they'll find forgiveness and peace with me. It doesn't matter how much I say it. If I don't live like that, they won't. So, Peter runs to Jesus because he just has this intuition, this instinct from his time spent with him that with him is the safest place to be in my guilt and shame, even though he's the one I've offended and hurt. And so he goes to him. And notice he didn't try to excuse his guilt, Peter owned it, he accepted it, that he was guilty that conversation on the beach, Peter didn't say, Jesus, like, dude, I was just kind of caught off guard. Like, they really jumped me with that question. I was like, I didn't think anybody would know (laughs) that I was from Galilee, too. He's like, Peter, you look different. (laughs) You look like you're from Galilee. They had a different appearance. Anyways, they would know, but he could have been like, you know what, they just, (sighs) just caught in a bad moment. I wasn't expecting it. They asked me, and like, ah, I just froze and didn't know what to say. He didn't, he didn't say something like Jesus, like, did you see what they were going to do to you, man? Like, I know what a Roman crucifixion looks like. I've seen them. I know what a flogging looks like. Like, Jesus, you, you've you got pain tolerance like Thor. He's like, I have pain tolerance like Michael Sarah. And like, I bruise like a peach, man. Like, I, I wouldn't be able to endure this. All right? Like, he didn't try to excuse himself. He, he just owned it. There's nothing in the text that says Peter tried to justify himself in front of Jesus. Because he knew. He knew he messed up. He knew he sinned. To clarify on guilt and shame, Pastor Harold uh, Sinkbill very helpfully defines the two which are very closely connected. Guilt, he says, is sin committed. Like you're guilty of sin. Right? Shame is sin suffered. That's the feeling, the experience of enduring and walking, knowing that I have sinned and that I am guilty. In the case of Peter, we see it, how when Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus looks at him and Peter instantly knows that he's guilty. Right? He's guilty. He sinned. Shame is seen when Peter goes out and weeps. That's the enduring effect of our sin and our guilt, is that sorrow, that weeping. And our natural instinct is to do exactly what Peter did. When you feel that shame, to go, to run, to be alone, to be isolated. But after being with Jesus so long, Peter knew that that was just not where he needed to be our old self before christ it is enslaved to sin and along with it the guilt and the shame that comes with it but thanks be to god through jesus christ our lord we are set free from that that when our faith and trust is in christ we find his forgiveness and we are given his grace and his mercy And so we don't have to carry that burden of our guilt and our shame anymore. And so we are declared justified. We are declared right with God because of Jesus' work on the cross and saving us. And we need to be reminded of this. It is not just enough to like think at one time and say, okay, I got it. No, throughout your life, just as the feelings of guilt and the experiences of shame will continue to come back and haunt you again and again, because this side of heaven, we are still vulnerable and exposed to sin and our sinful nature is so deeply rooted within us. We need the grace of God daily. We need to be reminded of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and his mercy and his grace the justification that he has given us daily. And that we are no longer enslaved to sin and death and guilt and shame. And that is what the hope of Easter reveals to us. Is that we are set free. We are this new human, this new person, no longer enslaved to sin, death, guilt, and shame. But we are set free in Christ. And that is good for your soul. And this is where the gospel is just rings so true, and it is so amazing. You feel guilty because you're guilty, right? That's not wrong. It's not bad. You feel ashamed because you're a sinner. That is what you are. The sin in your life, it is so deeply rooted in your nature, as I've said. You can't just get rid of it. You can't just shake it by the power of positive thinking and thinking good thoughts about yourself. It doesn't work that way. And that's what the self-help world of today tries to convince us of. It's like, no, no, just don't think of yourself as guilty. You're not, you didn't sin. You just, you made a mistake. That's not who you are. It's okay. You don't need to feel this shame and your guilt like, because you can just try harder. You just think more positively about yourself, which a lot of us need to think more positively about ourselves. That's true to a degree. But that's not the heart of the matter, Right? The gospel says that, yes, you're guilty. Yes, you are a sinner. But God loves you anyways. Your creator, the one who made you, loves you in spite of your sin and your guilt. And has taken your guilt and your shame upon himself and died on the cross. And so now you should think of yourself the way God thinks of you. Yes, as guilty and as a sinner, but a recipient of grace and favor. And because of Jesus, now a child of God. When you are in Christ, when you know Christ and you love Christ and he has produced this love within you, you are a child of God. And just like I hope that my kids always know that for me, they have a blank check of forgiveness. That's the way God is with you. He has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. When you are in him, you have his forgiveness and his mercy. So don't run from him when you feel this shame. Go to him. Meet him. Embrace him. And allow him to speak this truth into your life. And for him to for you to hear the words of Jesus, Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Go feed my sheep. I'm commissioning you. You're a part of my people. Go Jesus says to Peter. A self-help language. It's like, it's like putting Neosporin on cancer. It doesn't do it. It's not going to cut it. You need something deeper to root out this sinful nature within you, to root out these feelings of guilt and shame so that you don't keep running back to them and in isolation, beating yourself up, believing the lies of the enemy. You need the truth of Jesus and God's word. You need to be with him. So don't stop at anything to get to him. Like Peter, run to the tomb. <laughs> run to meet the resurrected Jesus. Dive in. Put your, swim as fast as you can. I don't care. Get to him so that you can experience his loving embrace of forgiveness and mercy. You need it daily. That is a part of being new in Christ as we walk through life without the burden of guilt and shame. That is beautiful. Beautiful. You cannot overstate the value of that. And now Mary, in Mary, we find another example of this new life in Christ that we have. She finds joyful purpose in our work for Christ. <laughs> we can find joyful purpose in our commissioning that Christ has given us. Remember, Mary, she loves Jesus enough to go to the tomb early in the morning. She loves Jesus to go later and to weep at the thought that somebody has stolen his body. And then when she sees him, she embraces him and loves him. And then Jesus commissions her. He says, Mary, like I know culturally everybody you're going to go tell this story to is conditioned to not believe you, but go. <laughs> but go. Jesus so elevates her. He says, I want you to go and be the first herald The first preacher of the gospel, (laughs) go and declare the good news that I am risen to my brothers. And she does. She's been given purpose. She's been given a new framework for life. New meaning, new joy in purpose and working for Jesus and his kingdom. I think one of the great tragedies of our Christian culture and world today is just the lack of joyful purpose in working for the kingdom of God. We have more resources, we have more free time than any society in the history of the world, and we waste so much of it, if we're honest with ourselves. And yet, we think of ourselves as being so busy that we don't have time for it. And we struggle with hopelessness and lack of direction. We feel like our days are just rinse and repeat, right? Right? We feel like we're a hamster just running on the wheel. (laughs) We wake up, we make our coffee, we eat breakfast, we get the kids to school, we go to work, we come home, we watch a game or a Netflix show, we go to bed, we get up, we do it again. Saturdays are a little different, but they start to feel the same in our routine too, right? It's just like rinse and repeat. We get bored. That's not the life that Christ has called us to. He has commissioned you. The general commission to all Christians is to go and declare the good news of Jesus, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. We have purpose, and we can joyfully serve in the purpose of the kingdom of God. John Piper, he, he delivered a, a message at a conference on May 20th, 2000, so this is dated 20, 23 years ago. Holy smokes. Uh, he told the story in his book, where it's most well-known and Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, he tells the story of two 80-year-old women from his church who had died on a missions trip in Cameroon. The brakes were out on their car as they were serving the medical needs of the poor and witnessing there for Jesus. And some folks in the church were calling this a tragedy and well-meaning and well-spoken. And, and yes, it was a tragedy. But he used that story to say, like, this is a, that is a life well-lived, purpose, meaning. They're driven for Jesus, for the kingdom of God, and serving him with the capacities, the talents, the skills that God has given them. They're called to do something for Christ, and they did it. Then he pulled out a newspaper clipping, and he read, this is a tragedy, he says. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago, when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. <laughs> he says, that's a tragedy. <laughs> a life lived in self indulgence is a, tra- a tragedy in the kingdom of God. My family and I just went to Florida on vacation, and I made the joke to Savannah. I feel like I made this before to her, but I don't know. We're sitting on the beach, and I looked around, and I'm like, babe, look at all these people out here just disappointing John Piper. <laughs> See, it's funny. It's funny. We, I didn't frame it properly with the context, but yeah. It's funny. But that's the bill we're sold by our culture, right? That's the good life. That's what we are to pursue, is a life of self-indulgence and luxury. And I think Piper's absolutely right in saying that that pursuit of that life, okay, if God chooses to bless you, With these things, you can use them for his kingdom glory. And it's the heart behind the matter, right? The pursuit of that life at all costs, apart from love of Jesus and the kingdom of God, is a tragedy. And so many of us have bought that message to say that's the good life. But it's a life not lived in joyful purpose, it's a life lived in self indulgence. And it's empty, it's vacant. He later writes, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world. You don't have to be smart or good looking or from a good family. You just have to know a few basic, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. This is the story of scripture. People who had Peter, Mary Magdalene, people had no business doing what they did <laughs> for the kingdom of God. But they were gripped by their love for Jesus. So often we're gripped and captivated by the wrong things. If we're honest with ourselves, right? And so that's the question I leave us with. Are we gripped, are we captivated by a love for Jesus? Is that what inspires you? Is that what gets you excited and gets you going in the morning? Is it your love for Christ? And when we are, our heart will become more like his. And he will call us. Maybe it's to stay in the same job that you're at, but reframe it. Maybe it's a different line of work. Maybe it's just giving perspective to all of the things that you do for Jesus, for the kingdom of God, and finding eternal meaning and purpose and value in those things. Your heart will break, what he is calling you to to build his kingdom here to live a life of purpose Lord Jesus we thank you that you have taken your sin our sin upon yourself and died on the cross that we can walk free of guilt and shame and Lord you have called us to a life of joyful purpose in serving you and your kingdom what a joy it is to follow you to have meaning for all eternity Lord call us to that foster in us this love for you